Welcome, everybody, to the Banyan Books podcast. My name is Ross McKeechee, and today we'll be in conversation with Merlin Sheldrake. I'll give a full introduction on him in a moment. First, I'll just make a couple of announcements. It's Banyan Books' 50th anniversary year this year, so that's 50 years as an independent bookstore. Now, Banyan has got regular opening hours again, 11 to 7 every day. And if you're not located in Vancouver, you can go to our website, banyan.com, B-A-N-Y-E-N.com. You can order all of our books and products by mail order anywhere in the world. So please support your local independent bookstores like Banyan Books. Now for the introduction of our esteemed guest. Merlin Sheldrake is a biologist and writer with a background in plant sciences, microbiology, ecology, the history and philosophy of science. He has a PhD in tropical ecology from Cambridge University for his work on underground fungal networks in tropical forests in Panama, where he was a pre-doctoral research fellow of the Smithsonian Tropical Research Institute. His research ranges from fungal biology to the history of Amazonian ethnobotany to the relationship between sound and form in resonant systems. He's a keen brewer and fermenter and is fascinated by the relationships that arise between humans and what he calls more than human organisms. Today we'll be speaking about his first book, which is titled Entangled Life, How Fungi Make Our Worlds, Change Our Minds and Shape Our Futures. Merlin is a really beautiful storyteller and he skillfully weaves a poetic blend of hard science and mystic expansiveness. More than anything, he opens our minds to new ways of perceiving and understanding. He helps us to fall in love, not just with fungi, but with the whole interrelated web of life and nature. Please join me in welcoming Merlin Sheldrake. Merlin, thank you for taking the time to join us today for having me it's good to be here now i understand you have a, a nice connection with uh, the west coast of bc mm -hmm. absolutely i learned to walk um in bc in fact and i spent my summers there since i was a, since then actually since i was a baby so it's a regular place for me wonderful mm. so this is your first book and hopefully not the last uh, I'm very curious, where did the journey begin for you with writing this book? Well, I think it had been building for a while and my interest in the fungal world had only deepened the more that I studied these organisms. They're such interconnected organisms. You can't really think about these fungal networks without thinking about who they're connected to and where they happen to be. And once you start thinking about who they're connected to and where they happen to be, then you just, um, the questions never end. And so uh, my ever deepening fascination with the fungal world uh, had been building through my time uh, doing research into mycorrhizal fungal networks in, in tropical forests. And then at a certain point, um, it felt like the book kind of found me. Someone asked if I wanted to write a book and I wasn't sure. And then someone else suggested it and I said, well, maybe. And then, and then, and then it 
just started to happen and and um and um it, yeah it became clear that this was what needed to, to to occur so um it arose in my life yes wonderful i'm glad you answered that call and um i i really benefited from reading this book um i'm really curious just your background and how you came to where you are today in your work um what your formative years were like how did you become who you are and what were your influences uh, that's a big one yeah well uh, my father's a biologist and a very amazing um student of the living world and so i grew up with uh with a very curious um human you know guiding my development and encouraging all sorts of uh, curiosity as well with the living world so that's um has played a very big part in my interest in in biology and uh, and my subsequent study of biology and so um yeah that's a, that's a big part of it and and it's one of these things where you start thinking about the living world you start thinking about how things connect and and as i said these fungi are connected organisms and so when you start thinking about ecology and the ways that organisms relate to other organisms and to their environment and these connections that form between organisms whether it be fleeting moments of contact uh, or more sustained um intimate association uh, that fungi can really help us to understand this ecological principle because they form these enduring links between organisms and so it was a very natural step for me to um to fall down the fungal rabbit hole because i was already interested in in the ways that organisms live and the ways that they behave and the way that they relate a rabbit hole indeed I, my impression in reading the book was that there is almost it seems like there's possibly endless uh things to learn about about fungus and mycelial networks and um like your book does an amazing job of opening the doorway of curiosity that you're very clear that this is this is a, a young science that's it's received little attention can you speak a, a little bit to that and where um mycology is at and its its stages of growth mm. Yeah, so within modern Western science, mycology has been neglected because, uh, for a number of reasons, I think partly the most basic level is that most fungi live most of their lives out of our sight, out of the reach of our immediate senses, as mycelial networks embedded in their environments, and so we, there's just a lack of access, and what we can't see, what we can't um, touch, then it's hard for us to study and take an interest, and so I think. Um, the ephemerality of mushrooms as well has led to all sorts of um, more complex attitudes like ranging from fear uh, to delight um, but it's hard to understand an organism just from looking at the mushrooms imagine what you'd know about an apple tree just by looking at the apples that came out on its branches for you know a few weeks every year there'd be a lot that we would be missing and it's just like that with fungi and so modern technologies have allowed us to open up the microbial world and the fungal world like DNA sequencing new types of microscopy and so there's a, a sort of um, a new wave of interest in these organisms because we just know more about them um, we know that there is more to know and so apart from that 
um, in the 60s, fungi won their independence, taxonomically speaking, and were, were then deemed to be an entire kingdom of life rather than a, a corner of the plant kingdom. And that meant that um, a commensurate amount of interest could be devoted to them. It's still not yet happened. They're still neglected relative to the plant and animal sciences. But it, um, once you recognize that this is a whole kingdom of life, it then deserves a kingdom's worth of attention. And so that's really helped things to transform. And, um, but of course, interest in fungi has gone back a very long time. You know, many organisms eat mushrooms and our hunter-gatherer ancestors would have paid a lot of attention to their surroundings and have a very uh, sophisticated knowledge of, of, of their um, ambient uh, vegetation and their ambient um, fungal, um, um, the, 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 the ambient fungi and the ambient animals. And, and so there's a lot of evidence that humans knew of, or used mushrooms as medicines and as foods um, and um, going into deep antiquity and long before. So this is um, our relationship with these organisms is, is by no means new, but we are now able to um, ask new questions. Right, right. And there's a whole history around human relationship with it and the different uses, which we can get into a bit more. I, if I might just share a quote from your book to just help our audience get an understanding of just what a profound um, impact they have on our lives. So the quote says, today more than 90% of all plant species depend on mycorrhizal fungi. They are the rule, not the exception, a more fundamental part of planthood than fruit, flowers, leaves, wood, or even roots. Out of this intimate partnership, complete with cooperation, conflict, and competition, plants and mycorrhizal fungi enact a collective flourishing that underpins our past, present, and future. We are unthinkable without them, yet seldom do we think about them. The cost of our neglect has never been more apparent. It is an attitude we can't afford to sustain. So before getting into the sort of uh, implications of, of our wrong attitude about these things, um, can you just tell us a bit about the, er the origins of life on land and how it moved out of the ocean and how fungi played a, a role in that? So around 500 million years ago, the ancestors of land plants started to make a transition out of freshwater habitats into the open air. And um, life, there was very little life on the surface of the earth in the terrestrial environment at that point. Um, it was scorched and barren and seared by radiation, um, unshaded, unprotected by all the organisms that currently live on the surface of the land. And so there are a lot of challenges to life on land. And especially if you spent your life as an alga floating around in a nutrient broth, you, know, you don't have to reach or search to get your food. It, you eat light, um, but otherwise the minerals that you need just um, you can absorb from your surroundings. But when you start washing up on the soggy shores of lakes and rivers, uh, there's an entirely new set of challenges. And one of those challenges is 
How do you get uh, the water and the nutrients you need to survive to supplement your photosynthetic capacity? How do you acquire these things from the solid ground uh, when you have nothing like a root? And so this is where fungi kicked in. And they were either um, on land before these algae arrived or washed up with them, but either way, uh, fungi are very well equipped to explore solid environments. That's what they've evolved to do. And so in this earliest days, they struck up an alliance where the fungi could explore the ground and forage for nutrients and water uh, in exchange for these energy containing carbon compounds that the plants, the algae were producing in photosynthesis. And so for the first 60 million years or so of early land plant evolution, fungi were the roots of plants. This was before roots. And so roots followed fungi into being and end up playing a role very much like these earliest mycorrhizal partners did. And so this has gone on all the way till today. And so today all plants have fungi that live in their leaves and in their shoots, um, winding between their cells and also in their roots. 90% of plants depend on these root fungis, mycorrhizal fungi, mycofungus and rhiza root. And so what we see now is the outcome of this ancient uh, alliance. These are, um, they are so intimately embedded in each other's lives that it's hard to think of them as uh, separable and you hold a plant you're holding the outcome the outgrowth of this association um, and it really changes the way that we think about ecosystems uh, because uh, these beings these plants that we that we see and depend on for uh, all the things that we depend on them for are um, are living relationships you use the term um, promiscuous a few times in the book to describe the relationships of um, mycelial networks and plants. Why that word? Can you give us an understanding of that? Mm -hmm. Yes, yeah, so uh, plants don't inherit their fungal partners. They must reform this association when they start growing their roots. Um, and so, um, and so, and fungi must find a plant partner as well when they germinate from their spores. And so this forming and reforming of the relationship continually takes place. And plants are able to form relationships with many different types of fungi, mycorrhizal fungus. And mycorrhizal fungi can form relationships with different plants. And so what you end up with is these overlapping shared fungal networks. And uh, this is the concept of the wood wide web as it's sometimes affectionately known. And, and yeah. so plants become essentially socially networked by fungi. They become connected through this fungal matrix in the soil. And, um, and so I use promiscuity to refer to, refer to the fact that these plants are able to um, form multiple types of partnership as are, as are these fungi. Right, these, this, this wood wide web um, concept and the the living shifting interchange and exchange of between all of these living beings in these networks um, you shine a light on how that can help us with understanding human networks uh, and other networks that we create models for including how our universe is laid out you easily go from the micro of what's happening in, in the microscopic world into the macro, the intergalactic universal world in this book. Um, I guess my question is, um, how can these mycelial networks help us understand 
broader networks in our lives. Yeah, I think there are lots of different ways to think about this question. And one of them is, um, if you look at the way that fungal networks grow and explore, a lot of this work has been done with wood rotting fungi that uh, range over large distances and uh, form long lived networks. And so they have a greater need for uh, coordinating their, their themselves as they sprawl. And um, some fungal networks are very small, like moles can they form these ephemeral puffs that don't really range beyond their source of food. So, but these wood rotting networks, they, um, if you study their behavior, you can see how they work. So Lynn Boddy is a researcher in England who's done a lot of work on this. And one of the experiments she does is she takes a block of wood, uh, which has a wood rotting fungus living in it. And she puts that on a, on a dish. And you can watch the fungus exploring outwards from the block of wood. It forms a kind of circle as it grows outwards in all directions at once. If we were in a desert looking for water, we'd have to choose one direction. And uh, fungi can go in all directions at once. And so that's what they do. They, they, they spread outwards, seeping outwards on this disc, dish. And then when they encounter a new block of wood, then the behavior of the network changes and it strengthens the connections with the new block of wood and it starts to withdraw the exploratory connections that aren't connected to any new blocks of wood. And so you can think about it a bit like a Darwinian selection, the, the stronger links, the fitter links are thickened uh, and reinforced and the less fit links, the ones that don't um, no longer do anything, those can be retracted and pruned back. So you have this very fluid behavior. These networks are always shifting their shape and in response to their circumstances. And of course they have to, because if they pour themselves into their environment for a living, which is what these fungi are doing, then the environment is always a different shape, a different form. You have to be a shapeshifter. You have to be flexible and responsive to your surroundings. And so this fluid network formation is, is a very um, powerful capability and a very ancient capability. And so you can see in these networks, both an ability to shift, to change, to prune, to thicken, um, but also you see redundancy. So you, there are all these interconnections. So if you sever one part of a network, then almost always there's um, other, other strands of the network that can take up that slack. Right. And so these, these networks tend to be very robust. So if you then compare that to some of those human networks, if the, the, the coronavirus pandemic has revealed some of these um, fragilities in our supply lines, for example, when you have very centralized networks with just you know, five major food providers, um, and if you knock them out, then the whole thing comes to grinding to a halt. But contrast that with some more local um, system of food production and distribution, it, which is much more robust. You could knock out lots of those links in that network and still have a functioning network. So one way that we can learn from fungal networks is thinking about the robustness and these resilience of these networks and how um, tolerant to damage they are. And when we do that, we'd see actually quite, a, as it's being revealed, how, how fragile um, many of the systems that we've made are, how fragile many of these human-made networks are. So that's one way of doing it. There are many others. Uh, you can use fungal networks to um, model network behavior. You can you know, you sever a link in a fungal network. It'd be easier than shutting a road to see what happens to the traffic flow. Uh, you can easily cut a link in a fungal network. So people are working out how to uh, use these living networks as ways to simulate network behavior and, and incorporate these principles into um, design of, of cities and transport networks. Right. One of the things that really fascinates me is, is um, contemplating 
the fact that there's no central, of course, in human beings, we, we look at the brain as the central processing plant for our intelligence within our, within our internal system. For these mycelial networks, each piece of the whole network is the center really of intelligence. You can remove one and the memories, like they're constant, there's a communication happening between them. I'm, I'm not doing it justice. Can you, can you um, expand on that idea? Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, we're so used to looking for centers of operation. You know, we're used to having a center of operations of whether it be our heart or our, the center of our circulatory system or our head, which is the center of our nervous system. And so, and we build our structures like this. We build capital cities. We have heads of state. We have um, a very a cerebrocentric, human-centric um, way of organizing our, um, some, of our, some of our structures. We also have more decentralized ways of organizing too. So it's not a hard and fast rule, but nonetheless, you do see these centralizing tendencies showing up in, in the way that we structure our societies. And um, so it's hard for us to look at organisms that don't have brains and yet are able to solve problems. They're able to uh, regulate the behavior in sophisticated ways. Um, and we look for aware because we're used to looking for aware, but with the fungal network, it doesn't really get you very far uh, because there's many of everything. And so coordination of their networks takes place both everywhere at once and nowhere in particular. And it's a real riddle. You know, people are working this out. The research has been studying how is it that they can coordinate their behavior? Um, how is it that one part of a network can behave in a certain way, taking into account what is happening in all these other parts of a network. Where, where is this data being, sensory data? You know, fungal networks are sensitive to temperature, light, gravity, chemicals, many more. And they somehow can integrate these data streams, um, integrate sensing and perception with action. And how can they do that? And where do they do that? And so these are really big questions in fungal biology right now. And it seems that they're able to do that um, in a distributed way. So each growing tip of a fungal cell called a hypha um, seems to be able to integrate information from many different parts of the network. And so this integration is happening on a very parallel basis, a, a massive parallel integration. And it's, um, it's helpful for us in understanding the living world because it helps to decenter our narratives, um, helps us to become more sensitive to the variety of ways that organisms have evolved to solve problems, um, to learn, uh, to remember, and uh, to make decisions. And, um, and of course, when you think about it, it make, would make no sense for a fungus or a plant, for that matter, the plants are also very decentralized organisms, um, to have a brain. I mean, plants can, you can buy, a herbivore can bite off 90% of a plant and it can grow back and regenerate from what remains. Uh, if you have a head where you've put all your most precious, uh, treasured um, uh, cognitive faculties and you've lost that with one bite of a, herbivore and then you're screwed and it would be a, a ludicrous way to organize yourself so in fact brains don't make sense for these organisms and, and we wouldn't expect them to have brains and um, we have brains because we move we move around we need to have these um these these networks of neurons that make up our brain in a, in a neat um, concentrated place like, like in a packed up in a suitcase uh, that allows us to roam and to rove and so 
yeah so i think just thinking on these questions really helps us to um to broaden our perspectives it's it's um it actually does i found it does shift um there is a something that cha changes in you as you read this book because of the ways that you ask us to start looking at the world and the questions that you ask us to start asking you're not giving hard and fast answers but can you talk a little bit about um, the importance of removing our anthropocentric or human-centered outlook when we're observing natural phenomena and how that can change us as human beings or evolve us even as human beings yeah well you know classical definitions of um of intelligence and, and cognition have really put humans uh, at the top of a kind of league table, a great chain of intelligence that um, that uses us and, and the way that we perceive the world as a yardstick by which to judge all other organisms, as if we were this ultimate type case, um, the, the, the highest standard. But when we do that, when we judge organisms by our standards, then we can forget to um, to appreciate these organisms on their own terms. Darwin had a definition, a very pragmatic, I think a very helpful definition of intelligence, where he thought of intelligence as the ability of an organism to do the things that it needed to do in order to survive. And it's a very helpful definition, I think, because it encourages us to think about um, the needs and the cognitive demands of that organism in its environment uh, over the course of its life and in the context of its evolutionary story. What does it need to do to survive? And how good is it at doing that? And, um, and that way we can immediately migrate to its terms, to its context, uh, and we don't start to apply our own standards, uh, which can distort our ability to, to perceive and to make sense of the world. So I think part of it is um, about helping us to understand the living world and part of it feels just like manners you know it's just good manners um and i think there's an attitude shift that can happen as we start to decenter ourselves to to dissolve these human exceptionalist narratives um and i think this can help to reframe and, and help us to reimagine our relationships to the living world which is something that we so urgently need to do at this moment because our current attitudes are, are dysfunctional um and not sustainable and ecocidal and genocidal yeah yeah i like that term ecocidal um i don't like the attitude i like the word um mm. now aside from how mushrooms can change the way that we perceive the world uh how can how can they be used sorry i shouldn't say mushrooms but fungi mushrooms are simply the fruit the fruiting bodies I learned. Uh, how can how can fungi actually provide us with tangible solutions that now there are many ways, what are some of the most exciting ways that fungi are being used? Mm. So this again is an old story and people who've been using um, mushrooms as food and medicine for many thousands of years. And so um, this is a big deal and um, using fungi and fermentation, you know, whether as yeast and production of alcohol, which has a very long 
uh, an intimate relationship with human cultures and uh, and human cultural evolution and or, or as foods like miso which use a fungus to digest um, grains or beans and so we've been recruiting fungi to break things down for us for a long time you can think about these processes as a kind of externalized metabolism we we can't digest these things ourselves in this way so we recruit a fungus to help us do so um, other organisms do this too leafcutter ants and and termites cultivate fungi in huge um in fungus combs within their enormous mounds and they feed the fungus and the fungus then feeds them and they're like giant prosthetic guts um externalized guts and so and we do this similar thing you know when we when we recruit a fungus to break down the sugar uh, in a barrel of grape juice and turn it into alcohol it's a kind of externalized metabolism uh, and that same with the, the misos and other um, fungal um, foods so by extension right now there are new ways to to think about recruiting fungi to break things down for us um i guess whenever you have made compost anyone who's made compost anyone who's has rotted organic matter and done you know used that to nourish the soil and to to um, develop soil structure and as has been happening for a long time um, we've been recruiting these fungi to break things down for us in the environment but now um, the field of microremediation is an example of um, helping getting fungi to help us encouraging fungi to help us um, break down uh, poisonous uh, materials chemicals pollutants um, waste that we have uh, pushed into the environment so fungi have amazing abilities metabolically they're kind of metabolic wizards they can break down things from crude oil uh, to use cigarette butts they can sequester heavy metals um, very ingenious metabolic creatures and so there are a number of ways that they might help us um, with environmental cleanup so whether it be putting in uh, blocks of mycelium into heavy metal contaminated water and then removing the blocks of mycelium with the heavy metals attached to them and disposing of that safely or um, rerouting our waste streams um, so there's one company called microcycle which are doing this and rerouting the, the asphalt roofing waste streams so rather than dump asphalt roofing in landfills where they make up a, a significant proportion of landfill waste to take that material into some kind of fungal processing plant, I encourage these fungi to break down this material into its um, more usable and more disposable um, constituent parts, and then send those parts off on their way um, to different parts of the waste stream. So there's a number of ways that this fungal metabolism is, um, can be helpful in rethinking our philosophy of, of waste. That's just one example. There are so many. Yeah, there's, there's so many. I, I understand that. I, I was really curious about the idea that in mycoremediation, these um, beings can actually be trained to to feed on different things. Like you use the example of the cigarette butts, and you gave an example in the book of um, was it Peter McCoy that trained them to eat the the cigarette butts? How did he do that? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So yeah, so Peter McCoy, who started an organization called uh, Radical Mycology, and he wrote a book called Radical Mycology, and he's um, a great fungal thinker and activist and um so he trained this fungus a pleurotus fungus and um, the ones that produce oyster mushrooms and he started by growing them on um with unused 
um, cigarette butts, and then with just a few cigarette used cigarette butts, um, but also with another source of food. So they didn't have to depend entirely on these, um, on the cigarette butts as a source of energy. And then he gradually increased the proportion of their food that was proportion of their matrix of their of their substrate, which was cigarette butts used cigarette butts. And over time, they had to adapt to uh, a, a larger and larger proportion of cigarette butts in their environment. In the end, they were growing just on, on nothing but used cigarette butts and were able to break down these compounds um, and use this as their sole source of energy. Wow. Well, um, so, I mean, anybody who's thinking that might be um, just a random experiment, uh, cigarette butts make up a huge amount of the waste produced on our planet every year. I can't remember the number. I don't know if you do, but it was, there's a massive number of cigarette butts that are being thrown into landfills every year. Okay. Um, I think we, we have to talk about psilocybin mushrooms, of course, because that's exciting for everybody. <clears throat> can you, can you tell us a little bit about the various ways that psilocybin to start with was used in history. So it's a, it's a much discussed and contested history because there isn't a huge amount of evidence. Mushrooms don't leave good evidence. They don't form, um, they tend to rot very quickly and very easily and leave not much behind. So the, most well-documented history is in Central America. And there's, there are texts, uh, pre-Columbian codices, uh, depicting deities holding mushrooms and consuming mushrooms. And a number of uh, Spanish colonizers documented mushroom use and, um, in Mexico, what, present, what is present day Mexico in the um, 15th century. And uh, these cultures would use them for various reasons um, and they were very much a part of of their life and they were venerated and um and so and there are mushroom stones these stones that look like mushrooms that um date from you know 2000 bc so this it seems that mushroom use in central america uh, stretches back quite a long way and um in other parts of the world, it's less clear. There aren't knockdown, uh, undisputed uh, evidence, a uh, piece of evidence about mushroom use in Europe, for example. There's a lot of speculation about certain um, mushroom-like forms on, say, the doors of churches or in um, paintings on church walls. Um, whether these are mushrooms or not is, you know, maybe they are, maybe they aren't, and um, it's very hard to know for sure. So um, whether mushrooms played a part in more ancient rites, you know, the Eleusinian mysteries, there's a lot of speculation about what was this drink, this kaikion that initiates would drink and then experience, uh, have a profound, uh, transformative mystical experience, mm -hmm. um, which they would never be able to speak of. And um, what was in that drink? Again, a sort of much speculation. Some people suggest ergot fungi from which LSD was originally derived. Um, some suggest psilocybin mushrooms. And again, it's hard to know either way. Uh, but certainly psychoactive plants um, 
and psychoactive substances have been used by humanity for a very long time and are actually used by other organisms as well. Um, animals get high in a number of different ways, so we're not alone in our uh, quest uh, for altered states. Um, which but animal, which animals? I'm curious. Which animals use psilocybin? Or well, I, I don't know of any animals that use psilocybin, but oh. um, other animals use. I mean, lemurs lick millipedes to get high. Moths drink the nectar of um, psychoactive flowers. Um, robins eat certain berries that get them uh, high, kind of drunk and high. Oh. And and there's, there's there's quite there's a long list. They're so cute. And, yeah. <laughs> so. So yeah, but but since certainly since the mid twentieth century, when psilocybin mushrooms were reported and described by Western investigators in Mexico, um, these mushrooms have um, awareness of these mushrooms has grown incredibly fast. And now, you know what was perhaps practiced by a few people. Uh, in um, in the hills of Mexico, have now become a global phenomenon. And within just a few years, um, by the early 70s, by the mid 70s, mushroom hunting had become a huge, as Paul Stamets says, a, a national obsession um, in in North America and then later in England. And um, and now uh, over 200 species of psilocybin producing mushrooms have been discovered, and people are domesticating them growing them in warehouses, on their windowsills, in cupboards, all around the world. So there's a really a new story of domestication going on right now with these mushrooms, which had fallen into a very easy step with humans um, who uh, are lured by the, the promise of this altered state. Now, how are these altered states being used uh, in the healing arts um, with mental health and other various ailments? So there's a, a new wave of research that's been taking place, as many people will know, um, in the last 20 years or so, um, which picks up the research which took place in the 1950s and 60s before these substances were made illegal, when many researchers and psychotherapists and psychologists um, came to regard psychedelics, LSD and psilocybin masculine as wonder drugs that could help treat a whole range of disorders. And so, of course, modern science is catching up um, with uh, indigenous knowledge of these plants and organisms which have been used in traditional cultures for a very long time, an unknowably long time. So um, it's not like the, you know, the fact that modern science can now tell us that these things are uh, medicinal for some things, that they uh, can help us to uh, grow and develop. Like, this is not actually news. What is news is the techniques which are being used to describe these experiences, for example, modern brain scanning. And so there's a new perspective on these substances and what they're doing to our bodies. So um, the recent research with psilocybin has found that um, it seems to, to um, shut down a reducing valve in our consciousness. Um, that when the psilocybin, it opens up new paths of cerebral connection and uh, loosens the rigid habits of our thoughts, which is why it can be so useful for alleviating uh, anxiety in, in the face of terminal diagnoses or, or the rigid pessimism of depression mm -hmm. or addiction. 
um, by freeing up new, um, by, by, um, by softening the rigid habits of our minds, by opening up these new possibilities for, for connections in our minds and in our brains, um, it's possible for people to explore new ways of behaving um, and to um, step out of uh, old ways of behaving. And so this is really where a lot of the attention is being directed right now. Now, you're a scientist and you're very careful in your book not to make any big assumptions or extrapolate too far beyond the confines of what is proven and known. But since it's Banyan books and you know it's kind of a mystic story, I wonder if you might extrapolate a little bit, what are your thoughts on um, the idea that uh, these, these psychoactive plants, specifically mushrooms in this case, um, are helping human beings evolve our consciousness. What are your thoughts on, on that in terms of, do they have an intelligence that is trying to help us understand something larger? It's a big question. If you, and many people report uh, in these mystical experiences that they have on on psychedelics and in clinical environments, um, a sense of connection with some kind of beyond, um, a, a sense of the divine which exists at, out there, um, and a feeling of a deep connection with this divine. And even if they're held rigidly materialistic or atheist views, um, can be convinced that there is actually something more uh, than this um, material. Um, reality that we are uh, we are asked to believe by mainstream science as as the totality of um, of existence. So it's very hard to deny one's own experience of these connections and these realms. And so it seems clear that these substances can help us to explore the nature of human consciousness, and um, which is not something that we have very clearly worked out, at least within modern Western science. And so as tools to explore the possibilities of consciousness, to explore um, the expanse of our minds, to explore the nature of our minds and how they work and how they connect us with the world around us, the universe around us, uh, these are really powerful tools. Whether or not the fungi are um, reaching out to humanity using these molecules to um, to try and um, encourage us to rein in our destructive tendencies. I don't know. It's very hard to know. Um, yeah, it's just very hard to know whether that's going on. Um, I can see that it makes organisms fall into evolutionary step with other organisms all the time. You know, the, the recent story of magic mushrooms is a good example. This, this new story of domestication has happened very quickly over the course of the last few decades. Um, psilocybin was first produced, it's thought, around 75 million years ago, long before humans arose. So if there was some kind of um, fungal um, intention to reach out to humans, then they certainly arrived quite a lot um, they arrived early to the party. And um, so it's hard to make the case that psilocybin arose or evolved in some kind of intentional way to do this, because if it did so, then why would it have evolved so many millions of years before um, humans? And um, so 
so yeah it's it's just very hard to know um but it's just the the main thing is that is how vivid these these altered experiences are that that we are um that we encouraged to to feel these things you know this feels to me like the the, the indisputable um the place that you know no matter how much of a skeptic you are about some of these more colorful speculations um the effects of these substances on people's minds is real um for sure and the astonishing things that it can um you know induce people to experience these are real uh, uh, uh whether or not the speculations have a grounding in um the long evolutionary story of these funky that produced psilocybin right what what role does um in science does it or i should say how important is it for science to embrace both empirical evidence and the the evidence that ancient cultures already understood which is subjective direct experience and that integration well i think it's very important to try and um bring these realms together and we live in a quite a a bifurcated system that was bifurcated by Galileo and subsequently reinforced by scientists uh, over the centuries and um, separating the world uh, the objectively knowable world Galileo called the world of uh, primary qualities things like um, mass length uh, these quantifiable features of the world the, the world that you can measure um, and the secondary qualities like taste color these things which are um, outcomes of our senses the things which are to do with subjectivity so in his he, he bracketed the subjective world off from the objective world because the subject world wasn't amenable to investigation by empirical experiment using techniques of measurement um, and so science has proceeded on the basis of these um, these primary qualities of this objectively knowable objectively measurable um, parts of the world but then it leaves a quite a lot Un, um, unexamined because obviously our subjective lives are a big part of our experience that's what makes up our culture our relationships our personalities our emotions all these things uh, which are uh, these are our subjective worlds the worlds that we experience as conscious beings from the inside um, these are unreachable to these tools of science which is why in these psychedelic studies you have to do this to ask to quantify people's experiences you get given these questionnaires like you know how do you rate your experience of infinity on a scale of one to five <laughs> <laughs> i mean this is this is how these the empirical method has to try and approach this question of people's experience and it's convoluted and complicated and actually really funny um often and so um so to to live in a world where science can understand this objective so-called objective reality and not explain, explain the subjective reality leaves us with a kind of schism a bifurcation between subject and object between nature and culture um, and these these dualities are really causing us a lot of problems and so some kind of unification i think is really important and we're seeing the struggle um that this duality brings in the study of consciousness the hard problem of consciousness now we're told we're asked to believe that out of purposeless meaningless feelingless matter arises through complicated process of evolution and through the convolutions of our nervous systems arises our rich lived nuanced experience um, 
our loves, our, um, the, you know, the, the experience of beauty, all this stuff. Mm-hmm. And so how can meaningless, purposeless, feelingless uh, substrate give rise to a meaningful, purposeful, feelingful existence? This is the hard problem of consciousness. Um, it's, it's, a, it's an anomalous um, thing in the context of a meaningless, purposeless, feelingless universe. And so we're starting to see this kind of um, this wrestling, this grappling with the problem of this bifurcated world uh, within consciousness studies. And uh, that's a really, um, that's a place where you can feel this fault line um, and, the, and the, the trouble and traumas of this fault line very clearly right now. And so, yeah, some kind of unification of these things is going to be required. Otherwise, we're going to um, live in this um, this split way, and it's it's I don't think it's healthy. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You touch on this need to integrate these paradoxes in in a lot of different ways in your book. And yes, folks, the study of fungi and mycelial networks can lead us into contemplating consciousness itself. Uh, I I wanted it's time now to get on to some audience questions. Um, so I will just open up the Q&A tab here. Everybody, the Q&A button, I saw someone who put in a question, is down at the bottom if you're on a laptop or computer. And I'm not sure where it is on the phone, but I'm sure Jacob can type that in the chat. Okay, first question here is from Ian. He says, I understand that tilling soil in large-scale agriculture is counterproductive as it destroys the fungal networks. Is there a way to keep the networks without harming yields? This is uh, an area of much exploration right now. Um, it is very possible to do no-till agriculture. You you drill the seeds in uh, in in a way that is minimally disturbing to the soil. Uh, the challenge is when you want to, um, if you have a cover crop on the field beforehand, you've got to somehow kill that cover crop before you plant your crop. And how do you do that? And there are a number of ways to deal with that. It's a little tricky. Um, some people use herbicides, some people use finely controlled grazing to do that, to trample the crops um, before you drill in the seeds. Um, but it's, yeah, the, the, the plowing is is a huge disruption and doing that um, is a, a sort of chronic stress on these soil communities, They're very rich soil communities that um, are disrupted, continuously disrupted. And after years of that, after decades of that, um, you impoverish these, um, the microbiome of the soil, which is, you can think of it as the guts of the planet. And so it's definitely, no-till agriculture is, is, a, is, a, is a growing, um, it's growing movement and, and it's definitely going to be um, increasingly important as we try to keep carbon in soils and to reimagine the way that we, uh, we cultivate. Mm-hmm. And something you touch on in the book is amat- what you're calling amateur mycologists. There's a huge grassroots movement of people that are out exploring the world of mycology and doing experiments. So Mendel says, hi Merlin, thank you for the fantastic book and for taking the time for this conversation. As you discussed, it has been a historical tendency to try to map human familiarities onto these very dissimilar bodies, rather than trying to perceive them on their own terms. 
I'm very interested in sense modalities, and I'm curious what perceptual systems you see in fungi that either A, lack human analogs, or B, can inform new ways to think about our human senses? Quite a bit to that question. Mm -hmm. So there are a number of different ways that fungi sense. And of course, there are lots of ways to be a fungus. It's a whole kingdom of life. So um, to speak in these generalities is to, is to, um, is to be a little inaccurate, but uh, because not all fungi will perceive all of these things at all times. But um, broadly speaking, fungi can perceive a pressure, um, temperature, a pH, a, a very amazing ability to sense their chemical environments and to interact with their environments in a chemical way. This is um, maybe them where they have a they have a lot of degrees of freedom here for sure. Uh, because they digest their environment by producing chemicals and they um, then absorb those chemicals into their environments and they manage their lives and regulate the behavior using chemicals of all sorts. So the chemical sense I think is very developed. You can think of that as analogous to our olfaction, um, except that rather than um, have a small membrane, chemically sensitive membrane up and behind the nose as we do, their entire body is a large chemically sensible, sensitive membrane. Um, gravity and um, and so I think the way to the way to think about the analog com the comparison with humans is to think about the ways that these the sensing takes place um, in our bodies our sensing test tends to take place in these very localized um, sense organs like our, our nose um, our ears our eyes and Fungi don't have such centralized sense organs um, as we've discussed. They don't have centralized anything really. And so you can think about their sensing as taking place again everywhere at once. Um, or there are centers of sensing depending on what type of sensing, but it's a very much a, a more distributed model. Um, so this is, this is how it's, you know, if you think about them being bathed in a field of sensory information all the time. Um, and then these data streams, sensory streams of, uh, of sensory data flowing through these networks and somehow being integrated. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a kind of mind-bending uh, mind bending process. So that, that's how I think about these analogs. It, it takes me straight back to that decentralization question. Mm -hmm. Now, this next question is from Amy. She says, Lots of human attempts to control ecosystems have ended up with damaging unintended consequences. For example, bringing predators into an ecosystem to try and get rid of a so-called pest species. Do you anticipate any dangers from our increasing use of fungus as large scale tools? Yes, there are plenty of possible dangers. Um, these, uh, there's a growing market for a mycorrhizal inoculum that you can use to put on your plant's roots before you plant the plant. And um, it's a bit like the market for human probiotics right now. On the whole, what's being sold, the types of bacteria being sold in these human probiotic supplements aren't the A-listers or B-listers in your gut. They're sort of X, Y, and Z-listers in your gut, which is just very easy to culture and produce in manufacturing facilities. And so it's a bit like that with these mycorrhizal supplements. What you're getting is 
there, there are many ways to be a mycorrhizal fungus. And um, if you're just having some generic um, inoculum and you're just liberally applying it to your environment, um, first of all, it might not work because plants and mycorrhizal fungi have this uh, quite sophisticated, they're ecologically matched. Different fungi have different effects on different plants in different places. And so um, not only might this inoculum not work, but you might be introducing these kind of weedy species, weedy fungal species into environments where they weren't before. So you might actually start to cause some damage through these introductions through simply out of ignorance. You know, we're just, when you're applying these things, many people don't know what um, they would expect to find in a healthy um, part of this ecosystem. So they don't know what they're trying to restore it to. So just applying this um, generic inoculum um, ignorantly to the environment is, is potentially very damaging. And we might not even know that we're causing damage. We might even realize that damage has already been caused. So that's one way um, whenever we're dealing with introductions of these organisms, uh, even if we think we know a lot about how it works, you can still make a mistake. But in these, um, in something like, when it comes to some of these fungal biologies, we really don't know that much about how they're behaving ecologically. So it's easier for us to stumble into that trap. Uh, unwittingly. So you're saying if we're not cautious, if we don't take measured steps, it could lead to to bigger problems. Potentially. Yeah. Next question is from, uh, they don't give their name here. Um, they ask, would Peter McCoy, who's the founder of Radical Mycology, believe that fungi could possibly be trained to eat cancer cells and tumors? Oh, that's an interesting question. Hmm. I've never heard of anyone investigating that possibility. I think it would be quite hard to arrange that because you have to encourage this fungus to be growing within your bodily tissues. And if it was growing within your bodily tissues and eating cancer cells, then it's hard to imagine it wouldn't also, um, if there was a fungus that could be trained to eat cancer cells, which is a form of flesh, um, I haven't heard of any fungus that does that in this way. Um, that it wouldn't also just eat your non-cancerous cells. So um, I think it's maybe less likely that we'll find a solution that way and more likely that we'll find fungal solutions to cancers through these fungal anti-cancer compounds that, that many species produce and which are under investigation already, um, which have anti-tumor, anti-cancer properties and also to help to upregulate our own body's endogenous anti-cancer uh, fighting mechanisms. Mm -hmm. Thank you. There's a there's a sort of a technical question around soil from uh, Taya. She says, can I use the mycelium circles to offer information to my soil biome with old growth soils or ION biome, an antidote for glycos glycophate developed by Dr. Zach Bush? How can I support greater balance and restoration to them? So I'm not sure about the supplement because I've never, I haven't heard of it. Um, and I'm not quite sure about the using the mycelial circles. Um, I, I'm not sure if I understand what is meant, but there are lots of things that you can do to um, attend to the health of soil. And this is something that uh, traditional cultivators have have long known in many parts of the world um, and which many organic biodynamic farmers are, are, are thinking about now. 
And um, usually it involves adding organic matter to the soil to add um, to carbon. So, you know, well-rotted organic matter, uh, which supports a healthy microbial ecosystem, provides bulk and mass in which these soil populations can live um, and starts to undo some of the damage we've done, which is essentially mining uh, carbon and nutrients from the soil. Okay, thank you. There's a question from Deborah. She says, thank you for your wonderful work and sharing it with us. I'm wondering what your thoughts are on how we might proceed helping our children understand the interconnected nature of their world rather than the centralized perspectives you speak of. What can we do as educators and parents to, sh to start shifting the next generation's perspective? Great question. So I think this is really important and perhaps it's best thought about by investigating the ways that we form their perceptions in the first place. It's a mixture of stories um, and guided experiences, I suppose. And so um, maybe we could audit the stories that we tell, the ways that we um, explain, the kind of explanations that we offer about how the living world operates. Um, and then in experiences by feeding curiosity, by encouraging curiosity into um, how these organisms relate to each other, that could be something rather than to encourage curiosity about an organism in isolation by itself, to encourage curiosity towards uh, the relationships formed between different organisms. Um, and to encourage experiences of the living world, which allow children to connect to organisms um, that aren't other humans. And I think that's a really big one. Um, and so many young people live and grow up um, without much connection to non-human organisms around them. And so um, to encourage that, to support that, to feed that, I think would help to nourish a curiosity about these organisms and how they, uh, how they relate to each other. Mm -hmm. There's a question again from an anonymous person asking, is there a relationship between fungus and bees? Do you have any recommendations for helping bees through fungus? How might this be done? Thanks. Of course, you've had <laughs> this in your book. Yes, yeah, so the work of Paul Stamets is very relevant here. Um, and Paul's done some um, amazing research with a team at Washington uh, State University and um, working off an intuition that Paul had that, that these antiviral compounds produced by certain fungi might help to alleviate colony collapse disorder in honeybees. And colony collapse disorder is a, is a, is a complex syndrome. And one of the things that happens is that um, bees' immune systems are weakened and they succumb to viruses, uh, a range of viruses. And, and Paul's found that indeed it's true that the extracts from certain mushrooms, um, certain fungi, they um, can alleviate colony collapse disorder. And so it's a really uh, exciting finding, a major finding. And, and he's now actively working on ways to try and roll out these bee 
um, extracts to support bee health around the world. So I, I suggest um, looking at Paul's, um, Paul's work on this if you want to know more. That's Paul Stamets. Now you, you've, you've known him since you were young. Was he a friend of your parents? Yeah. yeah. Okay. So he's been a great um, fungal inspiration. Right. And your descriptions of him in your book are quite, uh, uh, paint the, the, the character of who he is. And he's uh, quite a, a big celebrity in this, in this world, isn't he? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, you, you, you um, I had written down a quote that you, you wrote about Paul Stamets and I'll read it out if I can, because I thought it was hilarious. So here's, here's um, Merlin writing on Paul Stamets. He says, viral storms of unprecedented proportions threaten global food security. Critical pollinators struggle on, under, struggle on under grave threat from the virus bearing parasites. Poised to inflict global famine, the future of the world hangs in the balance. But wait, is that? Yes. Once again, fungi come to the rescue with the help of their hu uh, human accomplice, Stamets. He's got this kind of <laughs> superhero persona, hey? Yeah, I was, I was, I was teasing gently this whole, the, um, the, um, Paul featured in, he, he spoke to the Star Trek team and their recent um, series of Star Trek Discovery had an astromycologist hero called Lieutenant Paul Stamets. Uh, who was working to use fungi to save humanity um, fighting against a series of terminal threats and so i was just drawing this parallel between these um, astromycologists uh, sci-fi heroes and and paul himself um so hmm. that's cool i'm a star trek fan myself um next question we have is from uh sharon she says thanks merlin for offering this wonderful talk of your fascinating and useful work. The biggest question we are facing right now is how can we take the plastic out of our oceans? Can fungi help us or can we help them deal with this mess? Sincerely, Sharon. And there are some types of fungus that can digest some types of plastic. Um, I haven't heard of any uh, marine fungi digesting plastic, although it's not inconceivable that they could. Um, but the microplastics in the ocean is such a big problem because they're so dispersed. So um, it seems that however it's done, some kind of uh, centralizing, some kind of concentrating of these partic particles is, is going to be required before we, um, we can address them to treat them. Um, so I'm not sure what the, what the best way to go is. Uh, it seems to me that uh, to stop the um, release of these plastic into the ocean in the first place would be a good place to begin because that's quite within our power to do. Um, to then go about extracting it from the ocean is a whole, a whole other a major challenge. And uh, yeah, I haven't heard of anyone using fungi for this problem. There's another question along those lines from Jamie, who says, since fungi can break down hydrocarbons, could we eventually use mycelial networks on a larger scale to break down large garbage sites as a biological waste disposal system so that we no longer have landfill, 
but a regenerated soil to reclaim healthy land. Yes, so micro-remediation isn't a simple fix because you can show that fungi, you know, fungi can digest certain things in a laboratory environment, but then when you release this fungus into a contaminated ecosystem, uh, there's uh, so many other organisms there uh, doing their thing. And the idea that this fun, you know, fungal strain would be able to hustle effectively in the site um, and to remediate the site by itself is, is, a, is a little naive. So one of the, one of the difficulties is to um, work out how to introduce these fungi in such a way that they can both thrive and, 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 and um, be metabolically active enough um, to deal with this pollutants. And so when it comes to landfills, actually some of some plastic digesting fungi have been isolated from landfills because uh, perhaps these landfills create the conditions for new strains of fungi to, um, to, to come into being and to, to you know, strains to adapt and have new metabolic faculties. Um, so it may actually be that landfills are a place that we would actually go to look for fungal strains that we can then apply to other parts of the um, waste stream. Mm -hmm. um, and it's hard to know what will happen to the landfills in, in, a, in the long term. I mean, <clears throat> they will self-select for organisms that can live there, yeah. uh, thrive there, um, and do their thing. It just um, it would take a, a long time for them to... Oh, it depends on the kind of landfill, of course. You know, if you have uh, a radioactive uh, waste pit, then it's going to be a different conditions from a, from a non-radioactive one. So, yeah, a big question. But I would say that the landfills would be a place that we could start looking for useful fungal strains. Mm -hmm. I think we have time for one more question here. And this one is from Chris. He asks, what about morphic resonance, your father, um, Rupert Sheldrake's theory, as an explanation for the functioning of fungal networks? That's a big one. And um, well, my father's hypothesis of, um, of morphic resonance is something that he, that would explain, um, that would help to understand the operation of uh, the whole universe. I mean, it's a, it's a a general physical principle, at least that's what he's proposing. And so uh, if it guides the crystallization of <clears throat> chemical compounds, if it guides the um, behavior of all organisms, then definitely it would also um, guide the behavior and the evolution of, of funky too. And um, quite how this would happen uh, is, 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 is a very, that's a big conversation to have, right. <laughs> perhaps for another time. <laughs> right. Yes. Um, before we close, I'm very curious um, to ask you, what, what is it that you're working on right now? What are, what are your current uh, projects? At the moment, I'm in a cyclone of book publicity. Um, so actually, I haven't had time to really kick off a whole new, a whole new project. I'm interested in picking up some um, some, doing some research on the uh, electrical signaling within fungal networks. That's what I'm, I'm currently thinking about doing next. Um, and um, more writing projects and more research. Yeah. Great. I'm excited that you've got more writing projects because really um, for anybody that hasn't read the book, Merlin is a, is a really fantastic writer. He's poetic and um, 
it paints a beautiful picture. It's, it's easy to read if, if anybody's scared of, of diving into a book like this because um, they feel it might be you know, too scientific. Please don't uh, be scared. It's, it's a wonderfully woven story and easily accessible and uh, entertaining as well as informative and expansive. Um, last question. What do you feel, Merlin, is the, the future of mycology today? Uh, what needs the most attention? A lot of basic work uh, needs to be done on, on the behavior of mycelial networks, how they signal um, to themselves. How do they coordinate their behavior? How did they pass information around themselves? And how does information pass between one mycelial network and another fungus or between one fungus and a plant? And so a lot of basic biological work needs to be done, physiological work. Um, and that will help us to understand a lot about fungal lives. And then there's many questions about fungal applications, um, new fungal um, medicines. There's a lot of um, exploration to be done there. Um, the remediation technologies, fungal research into um, building materials, you know, um, better-like fabrics or, or Know, bricks that you can build structures from. And this is a lot of research is, is happening into these areas already, but this has a potential to really transform uh, human lives. Um, yeah, so a mixture of basic biology, you know, a basic understanding without particular um, outcomes in mind and this applied branch. Um, but really it's just, it's a really big question because in fungal biology really, you don't have to go very far before you hit uh, a load of unanswered uh, questions, even just as far as how they grow, you know, how to high full tips, how they expand. We don't really understand the basic mechanics of their growth process, you know, how, how do the, um, it's such a, such a, a fundamental part of their lives, and, and yet it remains um, so little understood. Okay. Um, Merlin, thank you so much for, for taking the time to join us today and uh, speaking to our audience and congratulations on your first book and the success of it. It's a wonderful book and looking forward to, to seeing your work in the future and possibly connecting again. A reminder to everybody that Banyan is open 11 to 7 every day at our brick and mortar location in Kitsilano and Vancouver. And if you'd like to order anything online, you can go to banyan.com, B-A-N-Y-E-N.com. Thanks again, Merlin Sheldrake, and wishing everyone a great day. Thank you. You have been listening to In Conversation, a podcast. Banyan Books and Sound.